first scripture passage is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, read from the English Standard Version. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as it is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God. On the first Sunday in November 2011, Christ Church Vienna started. We had our first service at Luis Arthur Elementary School, which is just a couple hundred yards that way. Uh, we were a church plant, as they used the terminology, out of the false church. And we were worshiping in a setting that was not quite much different from this, except that instead of construction for a play, on the walls were posters of broccoli and carrots talking. Because it was a, it was a cafeteria auditorium, and it, I mean, it really was distracting and funny that the instructions that they give elementary school kids in their cafeterias. Make sure to only eat your own food. It's like posted very clearly what to do and not do. And that's where we were. If you have been with us from the beginning, and I know actually a number of you have as I look across the room and see the pictures that we took from that first service, you remember, some of you, that we started with gospel and life studies, these small groups that were meeting at the Falls Church and around Vienna, the spring before we even started the church. We had a summer ice cream social at the Curtis's house where our friend Corky was dressed up as the ice cream man. Um, we had pre-worship services. We called them pretend worship, although we were worshiping. It was meeting at the community center, which I don't think we can actually get into now. And along the way, we've, um, we've met at Louise Archer. We've met at Madison. In fact, we've even met outside. Uh, one summer, there was a derecho, which I'm not sure what that means, but they say it's heavy winds. And we couldn't meet in Fairfax County Schools, so that day we met outside um, by the softball fields at Louise Archer Elementary, also just a few hundred yards away from here. We've had baptisms in an outdoor pool. We've had a Good Friday service at the American Legion, where in a time of quiet, there was a Harley Davidson revving outside. <laughs> For a good two or three minutes, we're talking about Jesus, his suffering on the cross, 
and the Harley is just revving. It was fantastic. <laughs> so what I've loved about this church is that it is flexible. We have to be. It's a people that have come here that have recognized, look, we don't have a sanctuary. And in many ways, there's a good thing about that. There's a good thing about being a church that says, hey, we're going to go wherever we can and meet Jesus and celebrate him. And we've been able to laugh along the way, to keep humble enough to say, hey, we're not going to get everything perfect. We just want to get Jesus. We've been blessed with staff who have been great, with people who have been in here who have been great. I've been really enjoyed the people in this church. And some of my best friends are in this church. With pastors, other pastors say, don't do that. And I say, but my best friends are in my church. It's just the way it's going to be. We've suffered together. We've dealt with loss and sickness, and many of you still are right now. We've grown together grown in our faith, our understanding of the gospel, and the grace that God affords us in Jesus. And we have sought to, to fulfill our calling as individuals and as a community. And we're still trying to figure that out. Who are we called to be in this community, in this church, in this village, in this town, in the place that we live? Who are we together? It's like we're teenagers trying to figure out what our calling and future is. Why did we start Christ Church Vienna? Well, it was not... It was not to be a better burger joint. The goal of starting Christ Church Vienna four years ago was not, hey, come try our burger. It's better than the one that you've had at the other restaurants. We don't want people just to switch over to our restaurant and say, oh, that's my favorite burger. Rather, we want to provide food for the hungry, for the starving, for those who have never had a meal. We exist for those who are not in this church or in any church, and we will continue to do that. Why do we still do Christ Church Vienna? Because we as individuals want to know and experience Jesus more and more and more. And we want others to know him as well. And that's why week in and week out, if you've been here, week in and week out, we dig into God's word. We build everything on hearing from God in, his, in the Bible, in his word, and we retell every week the gospel, the basic good news of what Jesus has done, so we can rehear the story that it's all built on. And we point ourselves and others to Jesus. And we do that week in and week out. And that's what we're doing this Sunday. We're in a series, if you've been here over several weeks, in the book of Ephesians, one of Paul's letters to one of his churches from hundreds of years ago. And we're in chapter 4. And Having read this chapter, I thought, why did I line up that chapter for our anniversary Sunday? That was not the right choice. It talks about all this sin and bad stuff and how we need to do these other things. And then I realized, you know what? It's God's word to us. And each week we dig into it and see what God has to say. And in Ephesians, if you were here from September and October, you will know that in chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul lays out the gospel, the good news of what God has done and who we are because of what God has done. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, and we're in chapter 4, Paul lays out our calling, our calling as believers, how we live into who we are because of what God has done. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at that today and look at what our calling is because of what God has done. So in chapter 4, verses 17, 18, and 19, Paul starts this section and I'll go ahead and just read from this to remind us. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And he's talking about unbelievers, because he's actually writing to Gentiles, non-Jews, but he's using that as a reference for people who are not believers. No longer walk as the, the non-believing, 
community in the futility of their minds. It's pretty harsh. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. Paul is piling on adjectives, dark, darkened, callous, ignorant, hardened, and he sums it up in a word like futility, life that is meaningless. And what is life that is meaningless? It's actually not sin in the way that we think about it, because he actually has an underlined word. I have a word in here that I want to underline or a phrase that I think is the center of it. It is to be alienated from God. That's the center of what it is to not believe in Jesus Christ. It is to be apart from and alienated from God. And actually to be alienated from God is God giving people up to what they want themselves. If you are apart from Christ, it's because you are going your own way. When we live walking away from God, it's because we're choosing our own adventure. And the Bible makes it very clear. God will give us freedom. God gives us the freedom to give ourselves over to our own desires. And what happens when we do, and you find this in any area of your life, it's the cycle that addiction takes place in. As you give yourself over to it more and more to the desires of your heart, you will find yourself more and more desiring it. More and more consumed with yourself and your own desires. In other words, the way of alienation from God is to be on one's own initiative. It's to choose one's own path. Paul says, that's how you were. So don't live that way anymore. He's not saying this is what you are right now. He says, that's what you were. Apart from Christ, that's what you were. But now, and then he gives us what he wants them to do. But that is not the way, this is verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So he's contrasting the way of alienation and the way that you are now. He says, this is the way I want you to live. Live into who you are. And he said, look, you learned Christ. You know the truth is in Jesus. In other words, any truth that you need to know for sure, any truth that is going to make a difference in your life is found in Jesus. And that's why, again, we go back to the gospel week in and week out. Because the basic truth that we need for building life for entering eternity, is in Jesus. But Paul's language is a step confusing here as well. In one of the phrases he uses, he says, you have learned Christ. Now, when you talk to your followers, if you were a rabbi or a philosopher in that ancient world, what you would say to your followers is, I want you to follow my teaching. Learn my way. So if I was encouraging you to do that with a rabbi or a philosopher in the ancient world, I might say, you need to learn the teaching of Aristotle. Or you need to learn the way of Rabbi Hillel. But in the ancient writings, you never find a, a recommendation to learn someone. There's a distinction Paul's making here. When you learn Christ, you're not just learning truth in, in a factual sort of way. You're not just learning head knowledge. You're learning a person. To know truth, you must know Jesus personally, experientially, relationally. 
learn Jesus. And when you learn Jesus, as you know him, you will find the next step happening here in verse 22, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Paul says we need to have the spirit of God, God working in us to renew, allowing God to work in and transform us and our inner thinking. And this phrase is basically the center of who we are, what's most important to us, what our deepest desires are. What this is telling us is something that we've heard again and again, that of our own nature, we are apart from God. We are fallen, and we choose ourselves. We need resurrection, renewal, transformation of our very heart's desires. And then Paul gets to really the, the, the main point, as I'm going to point out here, in verse 24, when he says, And so, because you are new, put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God. Righteous and holy. Put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God. What's Paul alluding to here? Genesis 1 and 2. The creation narrative. Right? That's what Paul's alluding to. Think about it as you you look at that up there. Created in the likeness of God. So the way the story goes is God created Adam and Eve. He creates man and woman in his image. In his likeness in order to know and experience God and reveal him to the creation. But Adam chooses his own desires, rejects God. And in doing so, he mars the image of God in him. He deconstructs what God has constructed in him, so that even his very likeness of God is broken, as it is in every one of us by nature. But the gospel tells us, Jesus offers us restoration resurrection, the recreation of our likeness to God. When we enter into faith in Christ, God begins to work and birth in us new creation, restoring his image in us and renewing us spiritually and ultimately eternally. So what Paul is getting at is that the image of God that's in us needs to be renewed and recreated and resurrected. And it's really a work from the inside out. When we read a passage like this, we think of all the things we need to not do and we need to do. But Paul says you've got to start with the inner transformation of who you are. And it's interesting, if, you, if we had up the whole section in here, what you find is that Paul uses the word to be created when it talks about our new self. We need our new self to be created. The in Christ renewed self needs to be created by God. But my sin nature, my desires of my own, living apart from God, my alienation is not something God does, it's something I do. The word creation isn't associated with it. In other words, it's like this. God wants to create in you his new life. Apart from God, you are decreating yourself. You're breaking down creation's intention. And it's why even before he gets to the life that we're supposed to live, the description of what to do and not to, He starts with this. The old self is the direction of me. The new self is an act of God. Which means, even before we get to what we should do or not do, we need to settle the God question. Who or what is Lord? Who or what is in control? Who or what is God? Because outside of that, it's just window dressing putting makeup on a dead body. 
But when we come to faith in Christ, the gospel tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that God does an act of creation when we come to faith. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And what does God want to birth in us? The life that represents him. We are his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10 says, we hit on this a few weeks ago. We are his workmanship, his masterpiece, his creative artwork. We are his piece of art created for something, created in Christ Jesus for good works. I want us to not get that backwards. Don't go to what we need to do or not do if you haven't settled the God question, if you haven't been created anew, if your faith is not in Christ. But then he goes on to describe what these good works are. He said, so put on the new self. And you know the difference between the old self and the new self. In verses 25 through 32, he has this long list. I've made a very small font so you can see how impossible it is to read it all in one little section here. But it's basically a bunch of words of do not do this, do this instead, and here's why. So a little simpler way to put it is in a table. So don't, falsehood, do, truth. Why? He then gives a reason there that I didn't put up. It's because you're members of one another. Don't be angry and sin, keep in your anger, but when you are angry, be reconciled before the sun goes down so the devil doesn't have a foothold in your relationships. (coughs) Stop stealing. Instead, labor and work. But labor and work not for your own good, but so that you can share with those in need. Put away corrupting talk. Instead, your words should build up, extend grace, give life. Put away bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander, malice. Instead, be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving, as God in Christ forgave you. You know, it's interesting and this almost reflects the Ten Commandments in, in part, we tend to think of the commands of God as don'ts. But with Jesus, it goes further because it's not just don't, it's do. It's not just don't murder, it's do love. Not just don't steal, but do be generous. And it's an inner transformation that Jesus gets at. The very motives of our heart need to be changed. You can avoid murdering people and want to murder them in your heart, and you are just as much a murderer. You might not go to jail, but it is the road to hell. None of this is new to the Ephesians. He's simply reminding them of who they were when they were apart from God and who they now are in and through Christ. And he's describing a life that's in line with believing in and being transformed into the image of God. So what does it look like for us to live this out? To live out this new self that he describes? Well, here's where I I found a little bit of a hard time thinking about it, because Paul is talking to the church. And if we use these words up here, don't be filled with falsehood and stealing and corrupting talk and malice, in a church like this, we're going to be like, well, we don't do that, we're great. And if you take it even a step further and talk about, say, your community in which you live, whether it's you're in school with your peers, you're in a workplace or on your neighborhood... And I said, so stop being angry, stop stealing, stop being full of bitterness and malice. The reality is Americans are civil. We have a politically correct culture which controls our, our offensiveness, which is good. That needs to be held in check. 
But I think if we try to just live this out in our neighborhoods or our workplaces or even in school, it actually lets us off the hook. Because the average American, including us, lives so distant from others, it's actually hard to imagine being wrathful or slanderous or full of malice towards people. But let's take it a step further just for our sake today. Let's say we talked instead about what it looks like in the families in which we live. If we took these descriptions and talked about them in relation to how you talk to, relate to, deal with your brothers and sisters, or with your parents, if you are a parent with your kids, or with your spouse, and that, it doesn't matter whether you're married or single or young, you can, you can fit into this. Think about the people who are closest to you, your family. And let's just take one verse, verse 29. Let's try and live this out in our family relationships. Let no corrupting talk, let no corrupting talk come out of you. Corrupting is a great word. It's very evocative. It, it means rotting wood. It was used of rotting wood, of withering or withered flowers, and of rancid fish. Are the words that come out of your mouth to your siblings, or your parents, or your kids, or your spouse, lifeless, infectious, with bad, rotting stuff? Do they stink? Or, as Paul says, only what builds up strengthens the other person, strengthens the family, the community, the relationships, and gives grace. We talk about grace in here a lot. It's unmerited favor. It's being kind to people who don't deserve it. It's not giving justice to somebody. It's giving kindness and mercy to the undeserving. Is that what our words do in our families? Are they full of forgiveness and healing and love? Do they bring life, or do they take it? My tendency, my tendency is to argue and defend and try to win when it comes to my closest relationships. Or it's to avoid and be silent. Neither of those is building up or extending grace. One fits more in the corrupting talk, and the other is, well, I'm not doing corrupting talk, I mean, I'm not like those people who are angry and full of meanness in their words. But Paul doesn't say the opposite of anger is silence. The opposite of our, our corrupting words is building up and grace-filled words. It's life-giving words. And I think he's just going a little bit too far there. I think silence is a nice one. Just avoid the confrontation. You know there's power in our words. There's power in words. The Bible makes this very clear. God spoke creation into existence. Life comes by the word of God. And Jesus, as he's walking around, speaks, and people are healed, and the dead are raised. And how do people come to life-giving faith in Jesus Christ? They hear the word of God proclaimed. When the gospel is spoken, when we speak the gospel to one another, the Spirit uses that to give life. Words, words have the power to build, to create, to give life. 
they also have the power to murder, to steal, to destroy. We can either create with our words. It's like we can, we can take words and build our family and our friends up, or we can take our words and destroy them. What are we going to do with our words? They have power to destroy, to build up. And avoidance and silence, my favorites, are not the option that Paul's talking about. So how do we change? How do we change? Well, when we tend to think about lists, or even we're talking about these sorts of things, we think, gosh, I feel really bad. I need, I need to be a better person, right? But here's the reality. If all we do is feel guilt, if all we're doing is trying to be more moral, more determined, more disciplined, we will fall short because we are just trying to deal with externals rather than internals. We're trying to cover up the sneeze rather than dealing with the cold. Paul lays it out very clearly. We need spiritual renewal of our minds and our very desires. We've been talking about this the past few weeks. We need inner transformation of the core of who we are. Because our desires by nature, our desires, the inner self, wants to push against God. I need my inner desire changed. I need the very root of me changed and continually changed. And again, in order to do that, if you haven't done it yet, you need to settle the God question. Who or what really drives you? Who or what really is Lord? Who or what is at the center of your desires? Is it God? Or is it you? Because if it's not God, you can temporarily window dressing, do a little bit of moral reconstruction. But it's not inner transformation. It's not spiritual and eternal. Paul's phrase in here that I want to go back to is to put off and put on. Put off the old self, your old self, put on the new self. It's there in verse 22 and verse 24. It's also a, the tense that's used in the Greek means a finished, done act. It's a one-time, finished, done act. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, at one time, you actually, spiritually and eternally, put off the old self and put on the new self. You may not look that way, but that is your new status and reality before God. And it's great that Paul uses this word, put off and put on. You might find it in Colossians and a couple of other places. Put off and put on is a reference to clothing. It's put something on, take something off. Take off the old self, put on the new self. And you have to understand clothing actually was way more important in the ancient world than it is today. We do it for style, a little bit of show of who we are. But in the old, in the ancient world, it actually was determinative of who you were, or the other way around. It revealed who you were. In Greco-Roman culture, what you wore indicated your social status. Only free Roman citizens could wear X. The next level down had to wear Y, slaves Z. What you wore revealed your status, and it was based on your family. In ancient Jewish culture, what you wore also indicated your inheritance and your place in the inheritance line. So, let me give you a couple of examples. Joseph had an amazing technicolor dream coat that his brothers were really angry about. 
right? Why? Because that robe indicated his positioning, his wrongful positioning as the chief heir, even though that should have gone to the oldest brother, and he was like the 10th or 11th brother. His robe indicated his place in the community and his inheritance, his future hopes. Jonathan makes a covenant with David. Jonathan is the prince in line to be the king. He makes a covenant with David, and when he does so, do you know what he gives to David? His robe. Why? Because that robe indicated David should be king. Jonathan was giving up his inheritance, his rights, his status as the future king, and gives them to David. And it's why in the prodigal son story, the first thing the father does when the prodigal son returns tattered, looking like a slave, is he puts a robe on him, re-inheriting him, putting him back in status in the community. Are you following me here? So clothes reveal the identity and worth of a person in the ancient world. In other words, who they are and whose they were. So when Paul says to the Ephesians earlier, you are children of God. You've been adopted into God's family, chosen and loved. You are heirs of eternity, destined for glory. You are children of God. You are sons, not slaves. And then he comes along and says, put off, put on. What he means is this. Wear the clothes you are made to wear. You are a child of God, of God, a son of the king. You are a prince. Wear princely clothes. Stop walking around as a beggar or a prostitute or a slave. And when we walk in sin and disobedience and selfishness and meanness, it's actually wearing the wrong clothes. Paul's not saying you have to do that stuff. You have to be really good in order to be a child of the king. But rather, you are a child of the king, so wear princely clothes. Wear what you are made to wear. Live the way God has designed you to live and the way you will live in eternity. Put on the right clothes. Clothing is actually part of the gospel story as well. You can see it in creation and you see it in Christ. The story of creation goes like this. Once more, we'll go back to it. In Eden, Adam and Eve, the man and the wife, were naked, and they were not ashamed. But when they fell into sin, choosing their own path and rejecting God, they saw that they were naked. So what did they do? They sewed fig leaves to cover themselves. And when the Lord God came, they tried to hide themselves because they were ashamed. But there's a verse that many people aren't as aware of. It's verse 21 of chapter 3. After they've been kicked out of the garden, it says, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He covers their nakedness and shame. And what is involved in, in, in how he clothes them? The death of an animal, a sacrifice. Something dies so that their shame can be covered. That's the gospel. It's not you're good enough. Get your life in order. It's Galatians 3, 26 and 27. In Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith. For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We wear Christ. God covers our shame and our sin 
in his son who died for us. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. We know that we fall short and mess up and we hurt people, even people very close to us in our families. You can try to live well enough on your own and simply cover up with fig leaves or you can put your trust in Christ, put your life in Christ who died for you and offers you righteousness and holiness. And so we wear the new self. We live into this likeness of God thing. We walk in truth and generosity and graceful words, kind and forgiving, not to become children of God, but because we are. You are a child of the king. Wear princely robes. Live into and enjoy that new creation life. Let's pray. Lord, we struggle with our best hour of the course and our own selfishness, our own desires against you. But you give life. In your son is life. It's the covering of our shame and our sin. The love of God that enables us to extend love to others. The grace of God that enables us to extend grace. Mercy for mercy. May we walk in the grace that God gives us and live out the grace that he has called us to. Amen. Bye-bye.